Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forums for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Ed. Hi, my name's Ed. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Ed. And I'd like to thank Walter for asking me to come and share tonight. I, um, first off, I'd like to say that uh, when I get a chance to share, there's a, there's a part in the book that says, and this is not to contradict what the format says, but what it says, it's, it says that we share in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. Because for me, I know what I used to be like and I know what happened, and I know what I'm like now. And for me, that tells me that this program is working in my life. And that's kind of what I like to talk about. So, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I ate because I loved, I loved the effect produced by eating too much. You know? Yeah, there were times when I would get sick from it, but in general, I ate to feel good. Um... I grew up in a household where, you know, it was, uh, you know, Ma, I don't feel good. Well, here, eat this. (laughs) Or, you know, Ma, I feel kind of funny. Well, here, take this, you know. And so, you know, I don't know if that's why I'm an overeater or that's why, you know, I wound up in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous 22 years ago. However, what I do know is that if you feel uncomfortable to begin with, when you're four or five or six years old and you don't know how to feel good and someone tells you, well, here, if you take this or you do this, you'll feel better, well, you do it, right? And so I had a habit. You know, if I didn't feel good, I ate. And if I didn't feel good, you know, uh, once I discovered drugs and alcohol, I did that too. You know, I was... uh, My... I just... I was a weird kid, okay? I'll put it that way. Um, I don't know any other way to put it. My, my nickname growing up was Ed Weirdo. And uh, um, I used to... <laughs> I just put it this way. We hear it said a lot of times in these rooms that, you know, I didn't fit in. I felt out of place. Um, I've heard people say they felt like they were from a different planet. Um, I felt all of those things, you know. But more than anything, I just... You know, I just, like, I just, I just, I hated life, to be honest with you. I hated life. And I know now it's because I had no spirituality to my life whatsoever. And I know that answer, you know, to my problems today. I know that that's the answer today. But back then, who knew? You know, who knew? So I used to do things like, uh, my first, my, the first thing that I ever found to get out of feeling that way was uh, hyperventilation. I don't know if anybody ever did that. But uh, we found out at a young age that if you breathe in and out really fast, you know, you get dizzy. And then it, 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 you can heighten it if someone comes up from behind you and gives you a bear hug. And then the pinnacle of all that is to roll down a hill right after that, right? And so, believe it or not, we discovered this at, I don't know, like six or seven years old. And 
you know, the other kids in the neighborhood were kind of lightweight because, you know, they'd go home when their moms called them and stuff. And, you know, I'd be out rolling down the hill on my own, you know. So I was doing stuff to get out of myself alone at a very young age. I also discovered that I could take food in my room and eat all I wanted and there was nobody there to judge me about it either. First, I remember the first time I ever did that was a five-pound can of cashews. Boy, you want to talk about getting sick. Um, and I couldn't stop, you know. I started feeling sick and I could not stop. I bet I, bet I ate over two pounds of cashews that first night when someone gave me that can. So, you know, I mean, and that was, that was an early age, and things didn't get much better after that, okay? Um, I was in a uh, Catholic school. I got kicked out of a Catholic school when I was, uh, let's see, fifth grade, fourth grade, nine years old, okay? Um, I was incorrigible. Uh, um, I, uh, I was rebellious. Um, I tried to run away when I was nine because I hated, you know, going to that school, um, they hated me being there, and uh, you know they let me know that they hated me being there. You know, and it was humiliating. I got to tell you, you know, it was humiliating. Um, you know, for me, growing up was no fun at all, and so any escape that I could find, the better. So what I used to—that's a part of what I used to be like. Okay, as I got older, I was not a nice person because all I cared about was myself. That's it. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't keep friends. I couldn't figure out, you know, I mean, literally, I couldn't keep friends more than two weeks. If I had a girlfriend longer than two weeks, that was like time to get married, I thought, you know. Um, and it's not something that I'm really proud of, okay. It's just the way it was because I was so uncomfortable being in my own skin. How could I have a relationship with another human being? It was literally impossible for me. And so, you know, being that uncomfortable, I did, I did whatever it took to get out of my own skin. And it really didn't matter. I never, I never classified myself. I never thought, let's put it this way, I didn't think I was a, a, an overeater until about two and a half years ago. Maybe a little over two and a half years ago. My accident date is October 12th. And I always get this messed up, 2007. And I'm currently maintaining a 70-pound weight loss. I apologize for not bringing the pictures. That's, that's impossible for me. That is literally impossible for me. Um, okay, so what I used to be like. Just a hint, you know, I look, at, I look at my son. My son graduated high school in 2001. And, you know, he still hangs out with some of his friends from high school. Right? Two years after, I, how about three months after I was out of high school, I was in contact with nobody that I went to high school with. And eventually, I went back a few years ago and made some amends to a couple of close friends that I had. And it wasn't for being a jerk, it was just for disappearing out of their life, you know. Because I wanted them to know that back then, I really thought they were good friends and they were good people. But I just, you know, I couldn't return the favor. I remember when I was in college, one guy looked at me one time. And he just shook his head, you know. And this is like pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Not because I couldn't stop eating or because I couldn't stop drinking. But just because, you know, I didn't know how to keep a, a relationship going. And he just looked at me, shook his head, and he said, you just don't get it, do you? And I really didn't. I had no idea what he was talking about. I wanted to know, but I had no idea whatsoever. So... I did the, you know, the most sensible thing. I got married. 
And then the second most sensible thing was when that wasn't working out, she got pregnant and had a kid. But before she, um, before my first wife decided to get pregnant, she had to have an abortion. And she came to me and said, you know, would you please take me? And I don't remember this saying this, but she reminds me that I said this. Um, that when she came to me, I said what I said was, you know, look, you got pregnant on your own so you can get yourself to the abortion on your own. I know. Um, I am not proud of it. But I bring it up as a point of fact because I'll tell a story later about, you know, what my relationship with my wife is today. And we've been married um, in you know, September. <laughs> Don't tell her I couldn't remember that. Uh, it'll be 30 years. So, and I got to tell you, I would not, I would not be saying that. I would not be standing here if it were not for the uh, twelve steps. It just, it just, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't have happened without people like Walter in my life, without people like uh, a guy by the name of Bob Horgan who died a couple of years ago, who was my AA sponsor for nineteen years. You know, I would not be standing here. I would not be saying, you know, that I've been married for thirty years. That you know, my kids are. 25 and 27 and they have wonderful lives today and you know they're kind of healthy which is really scary you know that they know how to ask for advice and they know how to spot when they're having problems and that's not that didn't happen by my own doing um, okay so that's kind of an indication of what I used to be like I will um, I will try to you know keep my discussion of the steps to, you know, how they relate to my life in uh, OA. It's, it, it's really difficult for me sometimes to separate, you know, one program from another because for me the steps are the steps. For example, I was in, I was in, a, I was in a meeting this morning, um, it's a step study meeting and we're on step two. And uh, <clears throat> I, was, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, why did I always have such a hard, hard time with the God thing, you know? Why did I have such a hard time? And then I finally realized as I was sitting there listening to this one guy talk that if you put food in front of a dog and he goes down to eat it and you whack him in the back of the head with a stick every time he goes to eat, eventually he's not going to eat. You know, he's going to figure it out. And you could be all the way on the other side of the room and you put that dog, if you put that food down in front of him, he still thinks he's going to get whacked upside the head with that stick. And that's kind of the way it was with me and a higher power. And so, um, I, uh, you know, when I first started working the steps, it was, it was real interesting because one of the other issues that I had to deal with was anger. And I couldn't figure out why I was doing all this work on the steps and I was still angry as all get out. Now... One of the other things I had to grow up with was a little bit of physical abuse in my household. And so when I, you know, when my kids were young, I mean, I didn't know what else to do, you know. Um, and so I had been working these steps for about seven years. And uh, I don't know, my son was, uh, let's see, he was about nine, okay, ten. And he was doing something that I didn't like what he was doing. And I found myself, we were in his bedroom and I had him... Uh, over my head, and I was getting ready to throw him up against the wall. Now, this is, quote, unquote, work in the steps for seven years. However, 
what I was soon to discover was that if you are working these steps and you're doing it on your own power, you know, you're not likely to change much. At least that was my story, you know. And um, it started to get my attention. It started to get my attention big time. And I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. For the life of me, I couldn't figure it out. It was right there in front of me. People were talking about it. But for me, I couldn't figure it out. So I wound up on this retreat. And it just happened to be at a monastery where there were some Franciscan priests and brothers. And so Saturday night, what do they say? You know, they say the, the, you know, the priests and the brothers make themselves available if you want to go talk to them about anything. So I said, yeah, what the hell? I'll go talk to them. You know, what do I got to lose? You know, I got this chip on my shoulder. Um, you know, they kicked me out. Uh, they slapped me upside my head because I didn't believe that Mary got, you know, that, uh, you know, my thought was that Mary had to get laid. Okay, and that's the, what my thinking was like. And um, if that's hurried to see to someone, I apologize. But that's what I was thinking at you know at ten years old when they kicked me out. Um, and uh, no, I was like, just like, it's like, come on, man, how can you know? No, I'm sorry. You know, how are you going to feed that many people with that amount of fish and bread? No, it ain't going to happen. You know. And you know that is again, you know, just like. Because I was so literal, you know, I couldn't take uh, all, all I could. That's all I could understand was the literalness of it. And you know, forget about asking me to reach off, you know, and put my foot out over a ledge, you know, on faith. It's, it just wasn't going to happen. So um, I sit down with this priest, and uh, I, I tell him my story, you know, and I tell him I say, you know, I'm working the steps, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But, you know, I'm still angry as all get out. I wake up in the morning and I'm picking my fights before I'm leaving the house. Because that's what makes me feel good. I'm not drinking. I was eating up and down. I tried every diet at this point in my life. I had gained and lost 50, 60 pounds at least a half a dozen times. I tried Fit for Life. I tried Weight Watchers. I tried, you know, whatever it was. And, 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 and what happened with the weight at this period of my life was that, uh, or the food, was that I found that when I denied myself things, I got huge cravings. So the first time I lost 50 pounds, I celebrated by having two double-doubles. And um, that just, boom, put it all back on. And it was the same. Every single diet I had, I rewarded myself, and then I was off and running again. My food plan nowadays is I eat three meals a day, I have two snacks, and if I still need something after dinner, I have a piece of fruit. I do that because I swim four times a week, and this morning I swam two miles, and you know, you get pretty hungry when you work out like that, and so I have to be careful of keeping a good balance, you know, but I am maintaining that 70 pound weight loss for, you know, close to two and a half years, and um, I mean, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't keep 10 pounds off for a week, (laughs) let alone, you know, what I've been able to maintain nowadays, so... So the point of the story is, go back to the point of the story, was the anger. And so I'm sitting here telling them my story. Now I had done an inventory and I had talked to, you know, I I had made amends. And I told them all this stuff. And he said something that's very interesting, which is, it's actually in the big book. And it's, it's right after the sex inventory. And I believe it's page 70. And he said to me, he said, are you sorry for everything you've ever done? And I had to sit there and think about it for a second. And I said yes. But up to that point in my life, I I was not sorry. Every single amends I ever made in my life, if I apologize to you, it was just to get something else that I wanted. And I was never truly sorry for the stuff that I had done up to that point. 
up to that point. And then all of a sudden, I had this huge wave of emotion come over me. And I have no idea what it was. I, I can't tell you. It was just a release. Who knows what it was. Um, I think I cried for about a week after that. Um, you know, if you... I, I, just, I mean, I have become such a wuss and, I, and, and it's like... I, 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 I hate to admit the movies that I that that, that just, you know... Um, <laughs> so, you know, my kids laugh at me, okay? Um, I cry in a card store sometimes. It's ridiculous. Um, but it's a good thing because what happened is now I feel... And I feel good things before I wasn't allowing myself to feel. So, that experience literally changed my life. Literally changed my life. I felt that, you know, I started to become a different person at that point. But, I couldn't, I couldn't keep the weight off yet. I couldn't keep the weight off. About, uh, well, no, I don't know about it. It was in May of 2007. Um, my wife... Um, was uh, diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And um, she um, she's still with us. She's cancer-free two and a half years. Okay. But she had to undergo, so she had surgery, and um, they removed all the visible signs of the cancer, but she had to go through six months of, of some, like brutal chemo. Absolutely brutal. And uh, that's the way the doctors called it. They called it brutal. And when the doctors call it brutal, they mean it. Okay, and so uh, you know, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to eat, you know. And I, that, this was my top weight was, you know, in October of 2007 because I was living at Jerry's across the street from Cedars. Okay, and I was back to eating whatever I wanted, and uh, you know, I was up to. Uh, I wish I had brought these pants because. <laughs> You know, they were the, you know, the size 40 pants. And that doesn't mean that sound a lot, a, a, a lot. I mean, it's all a relative term. But for me, I'm down to a 34 waist. You know, I was 32 in high school. So, you know, I'm almost down to the weight that I was in high school. And I was up to a 40 waist. And uh, it was about a month before, um, no, it wasn't. It was about two weeks before her last treatment. And I had remember running into Walter in a meeting. Now, Walter and I had known each other for over 20 years. And I remember running into Walter into a, in an AA meeting. And, and I, you know, I knew Walter at his top weight, too. We used to sit next to each other in a meeting on Wednesday nights. And uh, I said, damn, Walter, what happened to you, man? And he just looked at me straight in the face. He said, oh, way. And when people ask me now, you know, if they're in the program, I tell them. But if they're not... I just tell them, you know, I just eat three meals a day. <laughs> and they look at me like, huh? <laughs> it's actually kind of funny because, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, you know, what's your secret? What do you do? And I go, you eat three meals a day. You know? And they look at me like I'm crazy and they walk away. Um, and then I don't have to explain it anymore, which is a good thing. Because i got to tell you something, and this is no, no slant against anybody, but I've found that there are people, even in other programs, when I tell them what I'm doing here, and they go, what do you mean you can't even have like a piece of cake? And I go, no, can you have a beer? <laughs> and they go, well, that's not the same thing. I said, well, yeah, it is. To me, it is. You know, it's the same exact thing to me. And they just scratch their heads and walk away, and that's fine, too. Um, so, 
don't know, September maybe, I don't know, August, I called Walter. I said, Walter, I can't stop eating. You know, and it's true. I couldn't. At this point, I was hiding in my car. I was going to the drugstore to pick up prescriptions and stuff like that and buying, you know, the, what are they, like two and a half pound bags of M&M's, right? And eating them in my car. Uh, it just didn't matter. Didn't matter. Um, I had bags of candy under my seat. I had it, you know, in my office. Um, I had all the ice cream. And, you know, if anybody came in the kitchen while I was eating, I'd slam the freezer shut. I didn't want anybody to know, you know, how much I was eating. Um, I was eating mine and yours. One of the things I do now is I don't eat off of anybody else's plates either. Because um, I used to finish my dinner and my kids on a regular basis. So Walter said, well, why don't you meet me at a meeting? And I said, well, I don't know if, I, <laughs> I don't know if it's that bad, you know. <laughs> so, and, you know, Walter got it, you know, and he was just patient because he knew eventually I was going to call him again, you know. And here's the weird thing. I got to the same point with the food that I had gotten with the alcohol 22 years before, where it actually hurt. It actually hurt when I tried to not eat. I mean, I was like, God, I don't want to eat, I don't want to eat, but I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. And I finally gave up and I called him and I met him at a meeting. You know, And this was my first meeting. This meeting here was my first meeting in October of uh, 2007. You know, and I'm very fortunate in that I have not, relapse is not a part of my recovery today. Today. I'm not saying it's not going to be tomorrow, but so far I'm very fortunate that in two and a half years, this is my first attempt at it. Um, the part, you know, the story that I really want to tell though about, you know, how these steps work and the difference and the kind of person that I am today than I was before was my wife's treatments were she had three chemo treatments and five what they call hydrations every three weeks. So that's eight visits to the hospital every three weeks. Right? And I made it to every single one. And there was no way that I was going to miss a single one of those. Now that's not me. Okay? Sorry, but that's not me. Because I'm not thinking about you. I'm not thinking about your needs. I'm just thinking about me and what I get out of this. You know? And again, I don't say that because I want pats on the back. Trust me. I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. I say it because it's, it, it, it's my experience because I showed up and I was willing and I didn't give up that I had what's called, you know, a spiritual awakening. And for me, what that spiritual awakening has been, more than anything else, is that I can look people in the eye and actually have a conversation with them. You know? And I don't even have to know you, but I can actually look you in the eye and have a conversation and actually hear what you say to me. And that's that beginning of a relationship. I have friendships now that, you know, I've had friendships like, you know, like Walter for over 20 years. I couldn't, like I told you before, I couldn't keep a friend for longer than two weeks. So somewhere in the middle of these chemo, that's where it was, somewhere in the middle of these, if you've had any experience with that world, you know how frightening it can get sometimes because you don't know. I remember when my first kid was born, I was scared to death, you know, because, I, I mean, it was supposed to be this joyous thing and I was scared. I mean, I was, you know, my knees were shaking and... There's other phrases I would use, but I'm trying not to cuss. So, um, 
And uh, so it's four o'clock in the morning, and um, you know, there's that phrase in the book that, um, and and that said, you know, there's going to come a time when there's not, then when there's going to be nothing between you and a drink or you and a bite, then your relationship with a higher power. And this came true for me one night. It was about four o'clock in the morning, and um, it was early on, I think. And uh, you know, she wanted to die. Basically, she wanted to die. And um, I didn't know what to do. I mean, what you know? What do I know? I'm not a doctor. And uh, so, what do you do at four o'clock in the morning when uh, the person that you love dearly in life wants to die, and you don't want him to die? You know, what do you do? So I did the only thing that I knew what to do in a situation like this. I took her hand and I got on my knees and we were in bed. And what I said was, and, and, and I don't know how this came out, I said, you know, okay, look, here's the deal. We are powerless over cancer and our lives are unmanageable. And there is only some sort of power out there that is going to help us through this. And we have to, we have to allow that power to help us. And um, now, did she get through it because of that? No. You know, um, it was still hard after that. But I will tell you that every time it got tough, we did something just like that every single time. And she finished. I got to tell you something, man. She finished. She's a. She is tough, man. Let me tell you. Um, she finished this protocol that, you know, 30, only about 30 of the percent of the women who get into this can finish because it's so difficult, mm-hmm. you know. And she finished it. And did she finish it because we worked the steps on it that night? I, I don't know. But did it give her the strength to show up the next day and, time, and day after day after that? Yeah, it did. And that showed me the power that I, I believe in every fiber of my body, that there's absolutely nothing in this world that we can't get through together and with the steps. And I've heard it, you know, I've heard people talk about some of the most hair-raising things, and that for me is proof for myself that this thing works. And yet, you know, I forget it all the time. (laughs) I forget it all the time. And, uh, God, you know, I was having a conversation with someone just the other day who's not in the program. Because I like to use this stuff at work, too. I mean, it's a trip. You know, I've had um, people working for me anywhere from, you know, 10 to 60 people at one time. And uh, I spend a lot of my time doing, you know, conflict resolution. Do you know what he said? Do you know what she said? I go, okay, well, what was your part in it? And they look at you like, what are you talking about? <laughs> part in it. I said, yeah, you did. I said, what's your part in it? <laughs> and, 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 you know, they get cross-eyed with the stuff sometimes. It's really, you know, but it works. It works. If you can get them to listen to it, man, it really works. Because then they go out of there and they're just working on their side. And you know what? All of a sudden, two people can work together if each person is just worrying about their own side. So anyway, we were talking and I said, you know, here's the evidence. You know, she's all worried that something's not going to work out. But I said, here's the evidence. I said, has anything ever happened in your life to make you believe that it's not going to work out? No. I mean, think about it. For me, anyway. And I, I have a, I, you know, I have a close friend of mine. We talk on the phone a lot. 
And we keep forgetting that. You know, it's like, oh my God, I gotta go do this and it's just gonna be horrible and you know, and I, I don't wanna go, you know, and then he calls me up the next day and he said, God damn, I had the best time. And I said, and how much energy did you waste yesterday telling me how bad it was gonna be? And he does the same thing with me, you know, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, and I don't wanna do it. And then I wind up just saying, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. As soon as I become willing to do it, all of a sudden, it's not such a bad thing. And you know what? Something good always comes of those events. And so when I was, I was explaining this to her, and uh, she, you know, she got it. And, and, and she understood that, yeah, you know what? Everything always has a way of working its way out if we have faith. If we have faith. And I had no faith, man. Before I got here, I had no faith. None whatsoever. And uh, that's pretty much um, the end of my story. Again, uh, I'd like to thank Walter for asking me to come out and share. thought I'd have something witty to end with, but, uh, you know, uh, I think I pretty much said everything I want to say. So thanks again for being here. Uh-oh, eight minutes. And I'm not calling, I'm not asking Michael if he has any questions, so don't bother raising your hand. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sure you do. Do you really seriously? All right, go ahead. How do you pray? Oh, how do I pray? You know, it's funny. I tried the, um, you know, the standard getting on my knees. And um, again, it's like that old, you know, it's like the dog getting his head beat every time he tries to eat. I just have trouble doing it. And when one of the things I did when I was on that retreat, and I asked the guy, I said, look, you know, I have a difficult time getting on my knees. I said, is that okay? And he said, sure. So I sit. I sit, I close my eyes, and I say, I've memorized the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the eleventh step prayer, the serenity prayer. And sometimes, sometimes it's just as simple as, God grant me the strength. That's it. And I'll just repeat that over and over and over again. That's it. I try to do it in the mornings, and uh, it's probably the part of my program that could use the most work, to be honest with you. I don't, I'm not regimented about it, but it's simple. It's very simple. And I don't ask for things, you know. Again, it's just strength. You said it was going to be tough. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you for your share. Can you tell us a little about um, your experience with inventory... Um, the OA and was there a, was there much was there a lot of work to do with that step once you got abstinent or I mean, where, where was that for you? Uh, my experience with the inventory uh, once I got abstinent and how was that? Is that right? Okay, I come from I come from an old school and where I came from is that you do one four step and that's what the tenth step is for. And so sometimes, you know, I will talk to one sponsor and sometimes I'll talk to another sponsor about what's going on. But I am very careful to do a 10-step every day. And what I do is, before I go to sleep at night, I review my day. It's like watching a movie. And I make sure, before I go to sleep, um, is there anybody that I owe an amends to that I screw up during the day? Do I have to go back and fix anything, you know? And so, when I got abstinent, I did not do a formal four-step like I did when I got sober. So, but that's what I use the 10-step for. And I am very vigilant about that. 
And what keeps me on my toes is I hate making amends. <laughs> so it's like I have to be, you know, if I want to take back some old behavior, i got to be really careful because I know what price now I have to pay. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. How do you manage uh, forgiveness? It's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Um, someone recommended, there's a little thing um, in an Emmett Fox book called Unforgiveness. And he has a very specific way to do it. <clears throat> uh, for me to quote it, I won't even bother trying. But the basic procedure is that you pray for the person every day for two weeks. And then you leave it. Because then you're overdoing it. And it works. And it works. I know that's probably not the answer that anybody wants to hear sometimes. But, <laughs> but it does work. Um, that's how I do it. Over here, somebody. Yeah. How do you work the steps with your relationship with your adult children? <sighs> you know what's funny about that is we took them to so many meetings they quote them to us. It's really funny, you know. I remember we were sitting at the dinner table one night and they were doing something and I do this, you know, I do this, you know, to collect my thoughts. And that's become, uh-oh, Dad's having an, you know, an AA moment, right? <laughs> we do the same with the kids, you know. We make them responsible. We make them accountable. And, um, you know, the funny thing is, we talked about that. We never grounded our kids. We never grounded our kids. But um, we made them show up for stuff, you know. Again, we made them take responsibility for their own actions. And it was, you know, the principles that, you know, we use to live our life is that's what we taught our kids. And it was all grounded in the steps. And thank God we started them when they were young enough. And uh, I got to tell you, man, they are doing so well. It just, it just, it scares me sometimes. We are so fortunate. Um, for a while, we were going to a, a, a couples group and uh, one night the subject was kids and people were going around in the room you know, it's got like kids getting thrown through windows by, you know, drug dealers and kids getting taken away by social services and, you know, another kid, um, you know, having convulsions on the floor coming off of drugs. And this is like, like a kid after kid going around the room, you know, and it comes to us and we're like, you know, it's just like we almost had like survivor's guilt or something, you know, because uh, it was like, you know, we're just really lucky. We're really lucky. We got two absolutely, uh, you know, just wonderful, beautiful kids, you know. And people look at us and say, well, you did a good job. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I feel very lucky and fortunate about that. But we do. I mean, you know, we use, those, we use the same principles with them and always have. Did that? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for the share. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Cumulative effects of life and frustration. Have you found yourself against the wall where you really felt you had no option except to use your addictions to get out? Yeah, and the first one that comes up is the anger. That's the first one. But i got to be honest with you. Um, then eating would be next. Eating would be next. And I've been under a lot of stress lately at work. And uh, I found that little interesting things were starting to happen with my portions, you know. And I caught it in time and I called my sponsor and we talked about it. And uh, I think, you know, when those things come up, the most important thing we use is, the, uh, you know, are the tools. And for me, 
That is having someone that I can talk to about absolutely anything that's going on in my life. That, and it's that recognition. That's the first step. I'm powerless. I'm powerless over people, places, things, whatever's going on in my life. And the last thing in the world that I want to do is I don't want to give up my abstinence. I don't want to do it. Because I feel too good right now. I really do. And I was not feeling too good two and a half years ago. So, um, that's, that's the way I do it. Yeah. But it does happen. It happens. You know? I don't know anybody who does this thing perfectly. At least the people that I talk to anyway. <laughs> Is that it? Can I sit down now? <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you.